thankfully nothing but the blood of your son Jesus Christ that can wash away our sins there's nothing that we can do on our own that can cleanse our sins so Father as we continue to worship you today we just want to thank you thank you for your grace for your mercies that you have lavished upon us so abundantly God in the midst of our brokenness in the midst of our darkness in the midst of the messiness of our lives in the midst of our sins Lord you have sacrificed your son to die for all of our sins that we can have the hope of salvation and the gift of eternal life with you so God right now we just want to take a minute and confess to you our sins and to reflect upon the grace that you have given to us so freely in our lives. So God, as we have confessed to you all the things that we have done and that we shouldn't have done, the things that we have said or that we shouldn't have said or that we shouldn't have thought of, God, we just ask for forgiveness and we know that we are made clean because of your Son. We thank you for that, Father. God, right now we just want to see all those who are sick, all those who are in need of healing, in need of comfort. God, we just pray that you provide your peace upon them, that you provide healing for them, and that, Lord, you can teach us as a community of Christ to learn what it means to care for one another and to love for one another. So can you teach us how to support those who need, those who are sick. Lord, we just also want to pray for Christy, who's on a mission trip in Guatemala right now. And also want to listen to all the other missionaries and um, those who are preparing to go on mission trips soon. So, Father, we just pray that you protect all those people out in the field. Um, just really be, being your hands and your feet and caring for those who are in need. Lord, we may continue to just give them the strength and the time when they need it. And just the words of wisdom to reach out to all those around them. We just pray for the upcoming children's Easter program. May this just be a, a event where it's not just an event, but may your truth and, and the true meaning of Easter be spoken to, to families and to the kids. Um, Lord, may it even be a time where, where new new people, new families, new parents um, will come to know you. We pray for the upcoming uh, youth lock-in next week. Lord, may it just not be a time of fun and games and bonding, but may it also be a time where where we can grow deeper, where we can learn more about your word and the truth that you have given to us. And Father, we just right now want to pray for Pastor Tom as he prepares and, and speaks to us and shares with us your word and your good news. Lord, may you just open up our hearts, our ears, and our minds to hear what you have to say to us so that our lives can be transformed to be more like your son each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next Sunday morning will be the last morning in this series we've been looking at on the kingdom, which I teach as the priority message of Jesus. 
Thank you for your very careful listening to this. And so next Sunday is the last one, then the following Sunday is Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday. And someone's asked me, where do, we, where do we do after that? Well, what I'm going to do for April, May, June, I'm going to take in a bus trip through some of the major cities in the New Testament <coughs> where we find churches. And the New Testament is really a land of, of, of cities. The New Testament applies to churches in cities, not in the country. There's a reason for that. And we're going to stop at some of the major cities in the New Testament on this whirlwind bus tour and see what the city was like and see what the church had to be like in places like Antioch and Jerusalem and Athens and Galatia and Philippi and Ephesus, Thessalonica and Colossae, things, places like that. So it's a whirlwind tour. I'm going to stop one Sunday in each city, but really try to understand what the church had to be like in its city to survive and to thrive. And the task of the church, we'll see, is to bless the city. And so we'll be asking God, what do we need to be like as church so that we can bless the city of Vancouver? What's the city of Vancouver like? How would you describe it? I was asked that this week in a staff meeting, and the word I would use for it is sensuous. We're a city that is moved by our senses. And so what do we have to be like so that we will combat and stand against the sensuous spirit which is in our city? So we'll start that on first Sunday of April. This morning we're going to make a preview visit to one of those cities as we finish this kingdom series this week and next week. And that's the city of Corinth. Someone has suggested that if you were to add the, um, the sensuality of the red light district in Amsterdam, the sensuality of Las Vegas with its gambling and sex, the affluence and the consumerism of New York, you would end up with a city like Corinth. If you wanted to be rude to someone, and particularly about their moral lives or rather the immorality of their lives, you could say to someone in the first century, you know what, you're living like a Corinthian. That was a way to, to mock them and a way to sort of take them down, to slander them. So with that very, very brief background, we'll look at more in one Sunday in April or May, I think it is. Would you turn with me? You've got a Bible, iPad, whatever. But you need to follow the scriptures with me this morning. First Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9. First Corinthians 6 and 9. Again, we're on the theme of emphasis of the kingdom of God. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then Paul expands what he means by wrongdoers. These are some difficult phrases for us, again, in the sensuality of Vancouver. But he means neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves and greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. None of these people, Paul says, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we might stop for a moment and say with some righteous indignation, well, of course not. You know, we don't want people like that in our church. People like that don't deserve heaven. But you read on to the next phrase. Paul says, and that's what some of you were. Paul is where thinks about the church and the city, the background there. And he said, such were some of you. He's saying, I used to be able to list you and name you in those categories of sinfulness that I just talked about. But he says, doesn't sound, but he says, three words, you were washed. Might mean baptized, probably not. You were sanctified. 
made holy. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice the phrase, such were some of you. But, kingdom grace stepped into your life and changed you. That's what I'd like to unpack this morning for a few minutes as we come to this table. And to begin to say that kingdom grace frees people from the past so that they can change in the future. He got the phrase, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. I was watching Dr. Phil a little while ago. I find him an intriguing person. Um, and he was saying in one of his programs um, about the whole area of human behavior. And someone was asking, how will I know someone will change in the future? And he says, the best indicator of how people will behave in the future is how they have behaved in the past. That's generally true. Our past predicts our future. Unless there is some major intervention, some paradigm shift that frees us from an unchangeable past and alters the direction of our future, sets us on a new course. That's what Paul is saying here. And such were some of you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. You were justified. That, folks, is what conversion is. It is a radical change in our lives. Our first step that frees us from the past, cuts us loose from the past, from destructive patterns of behavior, sinful ways of living, negative forces within our own lives, and gives us a fresh start for the future. It's what the Apostle Paul experienced and what we call the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9. He was en route in his feet and in his heart to go get Christians and drag them off the court, probably to death. That was his past. But God turned him around in conversion and set him on a new course. Such were some of you. Paul is saying to us that we do not have to carry around in our lives like some invisible burden. The weight of the past was set free. He says in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. In a few moments we will come to this table of bread and wine. I so was, I was deeply moved this morning by um, our opening worship set and by Willis's prayer. Is there anything you have to let go of? Something in your past that you're carrying around? Some anger? Some resentment towards someone? Maybe they're here. You leave it at the foot of the cross. You come to this table. Maybe some area in your past life where... You, you know you've just failed. You've just really messed up badly. And you cannot go back to that moment and change that and take that word back again. can't do that. But this morning you can be washed and sanctified and justified. It frees us from the past. Kingdom grace also frees people from performance so that they can discover acceptance in grace. You know, at the heart and core of most of our lives is an unspoken desire and need for acceptance. We want to love and we want to be loved in community. So in a thousand different ways we ask ourselves and ask each other, what do, I need, what do I need to do to be loved and accepted here? There are some sad accounts today of young people who will do what they've got to do to join a game. They're willing to pay the price of initiation to join. Maybe they've got to steal, so they steal. Maybe the, the price of initiation, you've got to beat someone up, so they go and do that. In some extreme cases, in some cities, uh, they have to do a drive-by shooting, so they do that. 
It's all in the name of acceptance. Now most of us as adults, we are much more socially polite. But you know what? We still make people play this acceptance game to become one of our gang. It is just as ugly. Just as deadly. There's two sides to this game and both of them are wrong. One side said, successful performance leads to pride. You know, I've done it. I've arrived. I've got the badge. I'm in. And then we make other people play the game. The other side is failed performance leads to shame and guilt. I didn't do well enough. So we beat ourselves up in failure. The alternative, folks, is what we'll call this morning kingdom grace. That we stop playing the performance game with ourselves and each other. And we stand only in the strength and the power of this amazing, amazing dynamic, which is the grace of God. Paul says in Ephesians, For it is by grace that you be saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that anyone can boast. And then he goes on to say in what we call verse 10. I don't think that's on the screen. For we are God's workmanship. You know what the word workmanship is in Greek? It gives us our English word poem. God has been writing the most beautiful poem, and it's your life. It's my life. The words, the, 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 the music of the poetry is written by the hand of God. None of us have done anything. In fact, we can do nothing at all to receive this grace of God. And so we're free from the twin burdens of pride and guilt. The only place you and I stand this morning together is on the ground of grace. The only thing I can offer you this morning is grace. Many of us struggle with accepting other people without realizing that the place we have to start is by accepting ourselves within our own lives. And I often used to lead worship at one of our last churches. I'm an old folk guitar player. And sometimes in our worship service, I used to lead into this very, very simple song. I, it would move me to tears. A couple of weeks ago when I wrote this message, I sat at my desk. I didn't have my guitar, but I sat at my desk in the office here. And I will simply tell you, it moved me to tears again. It's an old song that simply says, Jesus, take me as I am. I can come no other way. Take me deeper into you. And make my flesh life melt away. Make me like a precious stone, crystal clear and finely honed. Life of Jesus shining through giving glory back to you. Jesus, take me as I am. I can come no other way. Remember that old hymn, if you know the Billy Graham Crusades, that you would hear as people came to receive Christ. Remember? It says, just as I am, without one plea but that your blood was shed for me. You see me at the age and the season of I, where I am in my life now. And I've got some of the big things figured out. But can I tell you, it took me many, many years to discover who God wanted me to be and to enjoy that. I struggled for years and years as a pastor 
but who God wanted me to be. I didn't really know who I was, how I was gifted. I had no sense of God's gifting in my life. I just plotted on. And then in kingdom grace, I began to understand who God had wired me to be, which, by the way, doesn't always fit being a pastor. But it's who God made me to be. Harriet loved me through those silent, difficult years. And when we come to accept ourselves, then we can extend acceptance to other people. The tragedy is that there are thousands of churches that have statements about grace in their statement of faith. They can sing Amazing Grace in four-part harmony. But they know nothing. They know nothing about cultivating an atmosphere, an environment of accepting grace amongst themselves. Another fruit of this kingdom grace this morning is honesty. Kingdom grace allows us to be honest. You see, when we live in an environment of, let me make up a new word, ungrace, we learn to hide the truth from ourselves and from each other. You know why? We've got to play the church game. We wear what I call makeup to hide the blemishes, not on our faces, but the blemishes in our lives. In some churches that don't practice grace, people learn to hide in order to survive and to stay accepted. They become masters of the art of pretending to be spiritual. They know if you church, you don't raise your hands very much in your church, by the way. They, but they know when to raise their hands and when to drop them. Then they church, they know when to kneel and they know when to get up. And they become skilled at the outward show of being spiritual. That's an environment of ungrace. It's saying, let's play pretend. But when there's kingdom grace, when there's a climate of grace, people can be honest. And when they experience grace, they experience it at times in the, in the failures of their lives. Galatians says to his brothers, and I'd like that sisters too, if anyone is caught in the sin, you who are spiritual, now it doesn't say you who are I and mighty and got it all together, but you who at that moment are just walking in a sense of the truth of God. Restore them, but a great little word at the end of the verse. It says you restore them gently. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount for meekness. That leads to the next fruit of grace, acceptance and honesty of the soil for real change and inner transformation. You see, kingdom grace is a place where people are not only accepted, but people, you, me, can experience real life change. We'll unpack this next. This might sound a little strange to you, but think about it with me. Kingdom grace frees people from doing good, which is morality, so that they can become good, which is holiness. I tend to read a lot of books. It keeps me out of trouble. Some years ago I was reading a book and a phrase just stopped me in my tracks. That doesn't happen a whole lot to me. The phrase simply was this, in your notes this morning. Christianity does not have a moral base. And I stopped and underlined that. Put an exclamation mark in the margin. Christianity does not have a moral base. 
It means it's not based on our standards of morality. It's based entirely, solely on the grace of God. In fact, one of the obstacles to a real change into holiness might be our understanding of morality. Because we think that being moral and being good is enough. All kinds of people do good, and they do good things, and they get involved in good causes. But God has called us as his sons and daughters to be more than that. He's called us to be people who do more than just do good. He's called us, it says in the scriptures, so that we might share in his holiness. And the greatest hindrance to holiness might be morality. We think that moral living is good enough. So we don't press on beyond it. Ephesians says, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless in His sight. For many years, you understand, we've lived in what I would call a church society. People who were not Christians, not part of the church, generally lived pretty much the same kind of lives as we did. They dressed the same, went to work, the same moral rules, they acted the same. But as I've told you a number of times now, Christendom is over. The day of the church culture is over. So we, we can look over the landscape of our society and our city like Vancouver, and we wonder, how did we get here? We look at people with multiple earrings and stuff on their faces. All kinds of issues of dress and lifestyle. And sometimes we shake our heads and say, how did we get here? If we're not careful, we invite people to change their lifestyle rather than come to the cross. We say, why don't you come to our church and be like us? Why don't you dress like us? We're trying to get them to change on the outside. And that is not the message or the method of grace. In the Old Testament, when Samuel is looking on God's behalf for a new king, you may remember the story. He comes to all the sons of Jesse and he feels that um, Eliab is the one who might be the next king. But the Lord says to Samuel, Do not look at his outward appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees man, in other words, people. God sees man, um, not as man looks on the outside appearance, but as the Lord looks and says on the heart. Kingdom grace always starts on the inside. Close to the heart, works from the heart. And when we start to walk in the deep soil of grace, the result is more than morality. The fruit is what the Bible calls holiness. It is grace that digs its way into the dark corners and crevices of our lives and exposes the hidden places and gives us the power and the strength to free us from habits and patterns of deeply ingrained sin and in their place. It gives us healthy, life-giving desires. Grace is unafraid to challenge us about what we need to change from the inside out. We can have all kinds of rules we want for people. But we do not have the power to change anyone. The only person we have the power to change is ourselves. And only grace will do that. When grace takes hold of our hearts, this pure grace unadulterated grace and your life and mine will be more rigorous more demanding than we ever ever could 
in kingdom grace we cheer each other on to be the people whom God truly wants us to be what that means is the kingdom grace these people from our expectations to discover their own uniqueness we believe that each person is as a Christian is gifted by the grace of God and the task of the church is to be an environment of grace in which these gifts can be discovered and unearthed and then brought to creative fullness. The church is to be a spiritual womb in which gifts grow and come to birth. But I'll tell you honestly, that's not always the case. When there is an atmosphere or an environment of ungrace in the church, the church can see in people in a very utilitarian kind of way. There's somebody to get the job done. Boy, we need one more person for our committee. There's a warm body. We will try and get him on our committee. Instead of gifted people to be developed. You know, people who are overly compliant tend to hide behind the choices that other people make for them. And if the choices turn out not to be very good, then compliant people see themselves as victims. When unhealthy compliance is turned inward in some silent anger, it grows in an atmosphere of ungrace. But when we would learn to walk in grace in our lives, and when we allow and give other people the freedom to walk in grace in their lives, we free people from our selfish expectations. By the way, parents need to do this towards their children. We help them to discover something that is infinitely richer and greater, which is their own unique gifting. And that is the task of parents. Not to make our children in our image, but to help our children to see the true gifting that is in their lives, what God has called them to be. And that let rise, that let rise and grow from within them. Each of us is made in the image of God. And in Christ we're being restored and renewed according to the image of the Creator. So instead of being some kind of Christian factory where we produce Christians in an assembly line, Kingdom Grace becomes kind of a spiritual greenhouse that grows people, you see, one life at a time. Each discovering the unique way in which God has made them and stamped them. And as a church, we need to understand that the weaker our unity is, the weaker our unity is at the center of our being. The more we will push for conformity, you've got to be like us to be in our game. But the greater our unity is, if we really understood the unity which is found at this table in the work of the cross, the more we will allow and encourage genuine, spiritual, biblical diversity. And that happens in the soil of healthy relationships, fertilized by acceptance, encouragement. Sadly, some families don't provide that for their children. Some do. Sadly, some churches don't provide that for people. And some do. Let me suggest to you that the church which will survive and prevail in these days in which Christendom has died will need to discover this atmosphere of grace in which people can discover and become all that God wants them to be. 
It will stimulate people as they find God and find their gifts and their passions to use every fragment of their lives to the glory of God. In kingdom grace, when people fail, they know that they won't be scolded. They'll be picked up. In kingdom grace, when people hurt, they'll know that people won't come to say to them, we told you so. But rather someone will kneel down and bend down and come and cry with them. In kingdom grace, when people succeed, they know that people will stand with them and they will cheer them on. Can you imagine a church like that? That gives me goosebumps. But sadly, too many churches are not places of kingdom grace. No matter what the church says and believes about grace, it's just not there. Churches that breed guilt will today die on a bed of guilt. Churches that grow grace will grow in grace. And it's not enough to preach it. They've got to practice it with one another. And if you haven't been doing that, start today. It's not enough to define grace and get it all right. It's got to be demonstrated. It's not enough to explain it. It's got to be experienced. It's not enough to sing about it. We've got to express it. But before we can do any of these things to one another, We've got to know it and find it in our own lives. In a moment, as we do once a month, we will pass around our wafer of bread, a small cup of wine. We call it communion. It expresses as well as has reminded us this morning what Jesus has done for each one of us on the cross. But it's just really about grace. It's about grace that transforms our lives, not our morality. We're not transformed by our education. We're not transformed by our background. No matter where we ever came from. The only place that you and I can stand this morning is on this ground of grace. Got it? Remember the old hymn? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Or in the words that many of us would know well, Reminds us how a captain of a slave ship could free himself from his ignominious occupation and his shameful past and find his new identity in the grace of Christ. He stands. You know these words well. It's the first verse of Amazing Grace. I'm going to invite you to sing it with me. Sing it a cappella. And could this really be this morning our introduction to come to this table? This morning you've got to lay aside your expectations of other people. Trying to paint them into a box. This morning you've got to take off your makeup. The only place you'll really take communion this morning is standing on, on God's grace. Sing it slowly. Let its words really just sink into you. And it is the people of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the 
save a wretch like me. I once was Blind, but now I see.